Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. If you're new with us, we welcome you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we uh, have entered into chapter 14. Let's just jump right in with verse 7. John 14, verse 7. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it will be sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in, my, in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now, as we have been pointing out, these words were spoken by Jesus in an, in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, the night before his crucifixion, while he and his disciples were celebrating the Passover together. That night, the Lord gave his true disciples. Judas had already left by this time to carry out his betrayal of Christ. And so Jesus turns to his remaining disciples, his true disciples, and uh, he gives them one last teaching before his death. And this teaching was designed to encourage them for the difficult days that lay ahead. And there were difficult days coming. In this passage, and I'm thinking of verses 7 to 14, Jesus is declaring his divinity and absolute unity with the Father. Now, he had done that throughout his public ministry. This was nothing new. He was saying it one more time. He points to the miracles he did as confirmation of who he is. God the Son, second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father, in perfect unity with the Father. Listen the perfect representative of God the Father. You know, it's, in the Bible, some passages are purely theological. Some are patently devotional. This passage is a beautiful combination of doctrine and devotion. Let's start this morning with the doctrinal because from it flows the devotional. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus makes some very interesting and important statements about himself in relation to his father. Let me read verses 79 again to you out of the NLT second edition. Jesus said, If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. We'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Uh, let me just stop here and ask you a very important question. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did Jesus come to the earth? Now, of course, most of you are thinking, well, to die in Calvary's cross to save us from our sins. Of course. And you would be absolutely right. He did come. To the earth primarily to save us from our sins not the least of which first john 3 verse 5 tells us that he was manifested to take away our sins he came to the earth to die for our sins right but that wasn't the only reason jesus came to the earth he also came to show people especially the jewish people what god god the father was really like you see, a lot of people have gotten a very warped concept of God. And a lot of times what happens is they look out into the world, uh, all the injustice, all the evil, the wars, and so on, and they postulate a theory of God that if he was really a good and loving God, none of this would be going on. So because there's evil and immorality and crime and violence and so on going on in the world, God can't be a good or a loving God, or maybe he doesn't even exist at all. The Jewish people over the years had gotten a work, warped concept of God because they tried to relate to God through the works of the law, works of the law. And because they constantly broke God's laws, they constantly saw his judgment upon them. 
So in their minds, God was nothing more than a fire-breathing, vengeful God. You didn't want to get him upset. A lot of people have that concept today, right? I, you know, if I step out of line at all, God's going to come down on me with the hammer, you know, because that's just what he loves to do. They have a warped concept of God. Jesus came to the earth to manifest to all of us what God is really like. In 1 John chapter 1, in verses 1 and 2, we read these words. And it's talking about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, the word of life, that's the title for Christ. The life was manifested. Jesus was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The word manifested is a Greek word, the Greek word phanerao, which means to cause to become visible, to make appear, to cause to be seen. It reminds us of what Paul, the apostle, said about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, He is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting the words he uses, the word he used, because the Greek word for image there is a word that was used of an Im image made by impression, as when Caesar's image was stamped on a coin. Paul is telling us that God the Father stamped his image, if you will, on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. This allowed man to see what God is like. God is spirit. Uh, God is invisible because he is spirit. But through the incarnation, the invisible God became a visible flesh and blood man. You're in John. Turn back to chapter 1. Let's look at verse 18. John begins his gospel. We're still in the introduction in verse 18 of chapter 1. He said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Greek is, he has made him known. He has revealed the Father to this world. Author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, God has revealed himself in creation, Romans 1.20. But creation alone could never tell us the story of God's love. God has also revealed himself much more fully in his word, the Bible. But God's final and most complete revelation is in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Paul's declaration in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the, is the image of the invisible God actually means this, that he is the perfect manifestation of God the Father in human form. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God the Father in human form, which means if you want to know what God the Father is like, guess what? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, right? Why is that so important? And here's where we transition from the doctrinal to the devotional. Why is that so important? When I say the word Father, what automatically comes to mind? Does the word Father bring to mind thoughts of kindness, love, tenderness, understanding, forgiveness, protection, and provision? Or does the word provoke thoughts of fear, anger, pain, hurt, and even hatred? Many people have a distorted and even a perverted concept of God the Father because of the example of their earthly fathers. And because of it, many Christians tend to associate how their earthly fathers treated them with how they believe in some ways, their Heavenly Father treats or will treat them. And that's a big problem. Because again, for them, it's a big problem because again, uh, many have experienced things at the hands of their earthly fathers that have served to damage their perception of their Father in Heaven. Things like fathers that abused them sexually and or physically. Fathers that were alcoholics and as such were selfish, angry, unloving, unmerciful, verbally abusive, constantly putting them down, impossible to please kind of guys. Always comparing them with a brother or sister. Why can't you be more like your brother? Or more like your sister? Or more like the neighbor kid or whatever, okay? 
Fathers whose love was predicated upon performance. Fathers who never had any, had any time for them or, didn't, or who didn't accept them for who they were. You're a girl, he wanted a boy. You're a boy, he wanted a girl. Or, you know, uh, you're a musician or an artist and he wanted an athlete. All these things act in a person's life to distort their perception of their Heavenly Father. Because of this, because of this there are many Christians who can't, who can't relate or who find it very difficult to relate to their Heavenly Father properly and positively because their earthly fathers failed to be a good example or in some sad situations failed to be any example of what a good father should be. And so now it's hard for them to see God as he really is. I'd like to tell you that when you get, give your heart to Christ and become a new creation, the old things pass away in the sense that you don't remember anything anymore. But that's not always true. I know some people, I, I've, I've seen their testimonies on television, where they were abused by their father for years. And then they got saved, and God literally just gave them the grace to move past all that, to forgive their father, uh, to not let that hurt victimize them anymore. But that is probably rare. Uh, it takes time to grow out of the old hurts and out of the old life into that new life fully. That's what this is all about today, guys. There's a lot of Christians who, people have gotten saved and um, they're still having trouble with all the things that their father did to them and they have brought that into their Christianity and um, they think that their heavenly father in many ways is the same way to them. Harsh, cruel, critical, impossible to please, that kind of thing. They don't realize that God loves them more than they can ever realize this side of heaven and only wants to do good for them. Only wants to do good for them. Uh, let's look briefly at some of the areas where fathers often fail their children. All right? First of all, too many people have a warped concept of God the Father because their earthly fathers, listen, abused their parental authority. Many fathers, instead of relating to their children with love, kindness, and compassion, you know, administering discipline lovingly when needed, Instead, are unreasonable, unloving, and flexible tyrants who use the rod not as an instrument of correction, gently and lovingly, but as a club to beat their children with. But God the Father never acts that way towards his children. Uh, not even in the face of their rebellion. Because I mean, I, I know some people think, okay, well, yeah, no, God never acts that way towards his kids unless they mess up. Unless we, you know, unless we do things that, you know, are, are, are wrong. Even then, God's love doesn't change. Even then, God doesn't become angry and wrathful and vengeful. Even when we are in rebellion and even sin, um, which go together, obviously. Uh, even then, God is still kind toward us. Our Heavenly Father doesn't punish His children. He disciplines them. And there's a big difference. Punishment is punitive. Discipline is corrective. God lovingly corrects his kids. Oh, he doesn't let us get away with a lot because he loves us. And if we move away from him through sin, we move ourselves out of the, uh, out of the uh, position where he can keep blessing us. And any good father wants to pour blessings upon their children. But if we move away from... Look, I've said this before. When my kids were little... Um, if they rebelled against uh, the rules of the family, I didn't disown them, but I couldn't take them for ice cream either. I mean, when we mess up and even walk away from God, he doesn't disown us, but he can't bless us either. And that grieves him because any good father wants to pour on his kids all the blessings and the resources the father has to give them. But even when we mess up, even when we fall into rebellion, maybe we back, so we walk away from God. God is still loving toward us. Listen to what God said to the prophets Hosea and Jeremiah as he lamented over Israel, his rebellious children as he called them, even pleading with them to repent 
and come back to him. I'll just read these. You can write down the references. First of all, Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. However, they sacrificed to the Baals, idols, and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they, they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. You can read the whole passage on your own. What God is saying is when I brought Israel out of Egypt and they were, they were brand new as a nation. They were just birthed as a nation. I taught them how to walk with me in righteousness like a father teaches a little child to walk, standing over the child with the child's little arms, right? And walking with the child to teach that child how to walk. God says, that's what I did to Israel. I fed them. I watched over them. I, I daunted over them, I, you know, they, but they didn't realize how much I loved them. They went after foreign gods. I was the one who took the yoke from their neck. I was the one who provided their needs. I protected them. I healed them, but they turned against me, and God's heart was broken. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 19 to 22, God speaking, he said, and I said, God speaking, you shall call me my father. And not turn away from me. But a voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplication for the children of Israel. For they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. God is just lamenting over the fact that as much as he did for them, they turned against them. They went on to the high hills and burned incense to every pagan deity. And because of that, they, they incurred God's wrath, his judgment. But here we see the heart of our Father God on display. Notice that his authority is not harsh or cruel. On the contrary, he is unspeakably gentle and loving and long-suffering. One of the children is having fun in there. I love it. It's a little hard to preach, though. <laughs> but he is unspeakably gentle, loving, and long-suffering. You know, in Exodus chapter 34, when, uh, when uh, God appeared to Moses, and uh, Moses wanted God to reveal himself, God the Father to reveal himself to him, that he might have a better understanding of who God really is, what, what he, his character and everything. And so you remember... Uh, Moses said, Lord, will you show me your face? And God says, Moses, I cannot show you my face. My glory would incinerate you. I'll tell you what I will do. Go hide in the cleft of the rock, okay? Get in there, and I'll walk by, and I'll, I'll put my hand over you, and I'll walk by, and after I walk past you, I'll remove my hand, and you can see my afterglow. Best I can do. But th this is what happened. And so as the Lord, uh, you know, revealed to Moses, not just visibly, but uh, in words, he began to proclaim his name to Moses. And, and the idea is that whenever God is proclaiming his name, it's really he's proclaiming his character. Yeah, his name is Yahweh. He didn't say that. He's, that's just a way of saying he was going to proclaim who he is, his name, right? And so in Exodus 34, verse, starting with verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God. Listen, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see it there? How kind and loving our God is. Look, your heavenly Father will never abuse you or mistreat you. How do I know that? <laughs> well... Because I have the example of Jesus who was the perfect representation of the Father. As you study the life of Jesus in the Gospels and how he dealt with sinners, don't you see the compassion, the love, the tenderness, the patience that he acted towards sinners with? The woman caught in the very act of adultery, John 8, law says she should be stoned. Jesus said, I forgive you, go and sin no more. The thief on the cross, all his life a criminal, a murderer, 
hanging on the cross for his crimes. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Or how about his own disciples? What a group. He called them little children. And he treated them like a loving father because he was representing God the Father with compassion and tenderness and patience. And it took a lot of patience. But I stretch this patience many times myself. Can't be too hard on the disciples, right? But look, many Christians can't get out of their minds the concept that their Heavenly Father is stern, harsh. Thank you. Just go ahead and get it. We'll wait. All right, great. Maybe we can all turn our phones off now. Okay? I know. I forget to do it, too. One day I got a phone call. I was preaching. And I'm always telling you guys, shut your phone off. That's humbling. You know, ring, 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 and it's my my briefcase. Oh, okay. I'm not going to be too hard on anybody. I, I forget, too. Uh, but look, many Christians can't get out of their minds the concept that their Heavenly Father is stern, harsh, you know, quick to punish, slow to love and forgive. Why? Because that's the way their earthly fathers were. But I can assure you that your Heavenly Father will never treat you that way. How do I know that? Because I have Jesus as the example of what the Father is really like. Another thing that has hurt many Christians' understanding of their Heavenly Father uh, from the poor example of their earthly father is in the area of, listen, parental acceptance. Parental acceptance. You know, we live in a society in general where all too often a person's worth and acceptance are associated with performance and or appearance. So if you bring home a good report card if you're a kid or if you look pretty or if you make the football team or you have a successful business and, have, and make a lot of money, well, you know, society tends to accept you, uh, tends to value you. And all too often, parental acceptance is the basis, is based on performance as well when it comes to children. Earthly fathers often love, often love conditionally, where, as the Bible declares and Jesus demonstrated, that God's love is unconditional. Get this in your mind, really, okay? Because the devil is going to always try to sow guilt and condemnation. Every time he tempts you and you give in to that and you fall, he's going to stand there and condemn you. And if you don't understand what we're talking about this morning, I mean really know it in your heart, he's going to win. He is going to beat you down, and you're going to start listening to that baloney. You can shut it off for only so long, but he's, he'll wear you down. And he'll keep hammering you. And if you don't really know this, not just in your head but in your heart, if it's not a conviction you've based your Christian life on, then the devil's going to start wearing you down. And he's going to start getting you to think, I am worthless. I am a failure. God doesn't love How could he love me? That kind of thing. And then, of course, he condemns you and, and takes you out of the race. Because you're no good now to the kingdom of God if you're thinking that God has rejected you and you've lost your salvation and you're a worthless, you know, and, and God doesn't love you anymore. That's, but that's how the devil pounds on people. Let me say it again. Earthly fathers often love conditionally, whereas the Bible says and Jesus demonstrated that God's love is unconditional. I, I like the way one author put it. This was good. He said, this means that your Heavenly Father loves and accepts you just as you are, whether you're fat or thin, beautiful or plain, talented or untalented, smart or not so smart, athletic or clumsy, artistic or non-artistic, obedient or disobedient, cheery or crabby, handsome or ordinary, gifted or average, giving or stingy, careful with that last one, uh, <laughs> He said, no matter what, your heavenly Father loves and accepts you for who you are, just as you are, faults, flaws, and failures. And listen, will work with you to make you more and more into the image of Jesus, his son, end quote. That's the key, guys. God loves you as you are, doesn't want to keep you as you are. That's what the Holy Spirit moves in at the moment of salvation, to, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and now he's working constantly to, to conform us each and every day more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. 
When I say God loves you as you are, I'm not talking about your sin. He loves you in spite of your sin, but won't let you come into the kingdom carrying your sin as if it's okay. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But no matter what you are, it never affects his love and acceptance of you as his child. And we're talking about God's children. Unbelievers are not God call, called God's kids. This idea that we're all the children of God. No, we're not. We're all the creation of God. But when a person opens their heart to Christ, they become a child of God. Now you belong to the family of God. The good news is anybody can belong to the family of God. I don't care how bad a sinner you are. You come to Christ, you, you give him your heart, you say, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my heart and I want you to run, my, be my master and, and, and my king. I don't care how bad your life has been. You are now a child of God. So we're talking about God's kids and uh, how God loves his child. No matter what we do, how we badly we blow it, uh, his love for us never changes. It's always constant because it's always unconditional. It's not based on my worth. It's based on what Jesus did and who he is, right? I mean, too many Christians have a hard time accepting the fact that their Father in Heaven loves them unconditionally because they had earthly fathers that didn't love them unconditionally. They grew up with fathers that always judged them based on performance and or physical, at and or physical attributes to the point that they never felt they measured up in the eyes of their fathers. So now even though they're saved, they find it very hard to believe that their Father in Heaven loves them unconditionally just as they are. It loves them just as they are. Oh, oh, but I'm ugly. God's eyes, you're beautiful. Oh, I'm fat. In God's eyes, you're beautiful. God doesn't look at the outward. He looks at the heart. And Peter said, you know, gals, don't put so much focus on all the outward stuff. It's what God looks at the heart, the beauty of a, of a heart that loves God, and so on. That goes for the guys, too. We live in a very narcissistic culture uh, years ago I got my hair cut you know at the salon you know yeah, we guys go to salons now to get our hair cut haircut and uh, I'm sitting there you know and I'm getting my my hair cut uh, and I see this this young guy who just gotten his hair cut and 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 uh, the place in a mirror and he goes over the mirror and I'm not kidding you he must have combed his hair looking at himself for 10 minutes I was waiting for him to say, mirror, mirror on the wall. I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? I'm like, what, what is this? I mean, this is the society we're living in. It's okay to look nice. I'm not putting that down. But, but you know, goodness, everyone's so focused on the external. God looking at the heart. But again, there are so many people that uh, had earthly fathers that loved them conditionally. They have a hard time believing their heavenly father loves them unconditionally, right? And because they had to constantly earn their earthly father's love, they now find uh, themselves trying desperately and constantly to earn the love of their heavenly father. Look, how do I know your heavenly father loves you despite of, to, of all your failures and imperfections? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Uh, turn to John 13. Let's look at verse 1 quickly. Now, this, this is to open up the night in the upper room. We come to John 13 now. We're in the upper room the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, John chapters uh, 13 through the end of 14, they were actually in the upper room. The end of chapter 14, they left and started walking through the streets of Jerusalem uh, on, towards the Mount of Olives, where Jesus then uh, spent the rest of the evening before he was arrested. All right, so... Right, but but here's to start uh, the evening. Of course, they were celebrating Passover. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world, you know, he's going back to the Father. He was going to be crucified, and they didn't understand what was going to happen at this point. Jesus knew. That's why he wanted to encourage them. Uh, they thought they, he was going to establish the kingdom. They had no idea he was about to die. He told them like three or four times he was going to the cross, but they didn't uh, listen. Um, but uh, he knew that his time was coming to go back to the Father. Excuse me, back to the Father. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, his disciples, 
He loved them to the end. The statement he loved them to the end means to the last or utterly and completely. Remember now, he's God, but he's representing also Father God. What he is saying is, what it is saying is, he loved them, and of course all of us, by extension, we're all disciples of Christ. He loved them completely, perfectly, and unconditionally, through everything in spite of their weaknesses and faults and failures. Again, God loves you not because of you. He loves you in spite of you. I'm, I'm, look, some of you are very lovable, okay? Uh, I wasn't that lovable, but I mean, you know, there are some very lovable people. And God doesn't say, oh, they're so cute and lovable. I got to save them. It doesn't work like that, okay? In his eyes, we're all sinners, reprobates, okay? You know, rebels. But he loves us anyways. Jesus, of course, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandment. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments, I'll love you. Very important, right? But he loves us in spite of who we are. And we try to give him a reason to love us because we think it's based on how good we are. We're putting ourselves right where the devil wants us, under the law. The Bible clearly teaches that God loves the world, a world of fallen sinners, unconditionally. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in Jesus won't have to perish in hell but could have everlasting life. Now, folks, if God loved us before we were saved, so much he sent his son to die for us, right? Romans 5 8. I mean, you know, I mean, um, where Paul says, Look, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God loved us so much before we were even saved, before we were his kids, that Jesus died for us, how much more do you think he's going to love us now that we're his children? I say that because a strange thing goes through, I think it's the devil. You know, people, you know, as Christians, they, they, they know God loved them before they were saved. I mean, John 3.16 tells us that in many other places, right? But now that they're saved, they somehow feel if they don't perform, God doesn't love them. Well, were you performing back then before you got saved? Were you living for God back then when you were lost? Of course not. He still loved you so much Jesus died for you. You think now that you're his kids and you blow it, you have, you're wrestling with sin and bad habits and alcohol, pornography, drugs, whatever it might be that, and you find yourself falling over and over to these things, that somehow God says, I'm done with you? No, we have to understand that, you know, as much as he loved us before we got saved, you know, he loves us even more now. His love for us now is, is, is perfect, uh, unconditional, right? Eternal. I mean, look, we're, we're looking at Jesus and how he dealt with people to formulate a proper understanding of God's love for God the Father, right? Uh, look at how Jesus dealt with Simon, right? Simon, the, his very name means shifting, unstable, Simon. Now, Jesus renamed him Cephas, Aramaic for rock, or Petrus, which is Peter, is Greek for rock. So, you know, he was an unstable guy, and Jesus said, no, I'm going to make you rocky. I'm going to make you like rocky, right? Uh, Rocky Johnson, okay, uh, Rock, son of John Johnson. So Peter was made Rocky Johnson by the Lord, but he was a he was just a composite of con of contradictions. What do I mean? Well, I mean, look at Peter's life. Sometimes he was impulsive, right? Other times very responsible. Sometimes he was affectionate. Other times kind of unloving. Sometimes he was courageous. Other times cowardly. Sometimes he was self-sacrificing. Other times he was self-seeking. Sometimes proud. Other times humble. Sometimes of great spiritual insight. Other times of no spiritual insight. And on top of all that, he denied the Lord not once but three times. Of course, he went out and wept bitterly. Peter thought, I'm done. The Lord is, he's done with me. I did the very thing he told me I was going to do. And I assured him, though, these guys deny you. I'll never deny you. And I blew it. He must be done with me. I, I can't see me ever having a relationship with him ever again. He's done with me. He went out and wept bitterly. For three days, Peter was, I, I would imagine, he was so broken, weeping. And the first person that Jesus appeared to after his res resurrection was Peter. And the Lord restored Peter without a word of condemnation or criticism. 
When you blow it, you think you're surprising God? You're not, you can grieve God. You can't disappoint or surprise God. He knows everything we're going to commit before we ever commit. So when we do blow it, it's not like, you know, you know we're, we have to tell the Lord that, you know, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry I disappointed you. The Lord said, I didn't, you didn't disappoint me. I knew exactly what you were going to do. Now, come to me. The reason you're falling into that sin, you're not following close enough to me. Draw close to me. You draw close to me and, 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 and keep in communion with me. I'll give you the strength to live the life I'm calling you to live. So Jesus went and restored Peter. Peter didn't realize it, guys, and, and maybe some of you here don't realize it. When Peter blew it, he thought his ministry for Jesus was over. He didn't realize his most powerful days of ministry were yet future. The breaking was a good thing. Peter falling was one of the best things that ever happened to him because it broke him of his pride and self-confidence and showed him that if he's going to live the life Jesus talked about, it's a supernatural life. And I had better draw close to him because if he doesn't give me the strength to do it, if he doesn't live his life through me, there's no way I'm, I'm, I'm living this life. And that's the thing. Of course, the devil condemns you. says, you're done. You're a worthless loser. And God is saying, no, no, no. I knew you were going to stumble. I knew you were going to fall. I let it happen. Peter, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me. Before the night is out and the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. He said that because he wanted to soften the blow. Peter, I, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to surprise me by the events of tonight. But I, but I love you. And, and you know what? I have big plans for your life. But if I didn't let you fall hard, you would have kept putting confidence in your own strength. I'll never deny you. I'm the best. I'm Rocky Johnson. You know, these guys are losers. Uh, God can't use us like that. Too much self-confidence, too much pride. Pride always goes before a fall. But sometimes that fall is good because it causes us to realize who we need to pour our strength and trust in. Um, all right. Let me just say this. If you're an earthly father, excuse me, if your earthly father rejected you, Know that your heavenly Father accepts and loves you just as you are. Again, he, he doesn't accept your sin. There's a lot of folks today that believe that they can uh, live lives that are contrary to God's word and still be Christians. They can be active practicing homosexuals or be involved in some other sin. And God is love and God loved, God made me this way. And so, so, you know, God accepts me as I am. When I say God accepts you as you are, I mean faults and all the, but it's not, he's not accepting your sin. Oh, you may come into the kingdom with that sin, but your heart is, Lord, I don't want to be involved in this sin anymore. Those who say, I'm coming into the I'm a Christian, and I can do all these things that the Bible says I can't do because the Bible's wrong and I know I'm right. But God loves you as you are and will receive you into his family as you are and work to make you into the image of his son, right? All right. So, guys, earthly fathers fail in the area of parental authority, parental acceptance, and finally, uh, in the area of parental absence. It's a big one. I mean, possibly your earthly father didn't reject you, he just neglected you. Didn't, didn't reject you, just neglected you. The sad testimony of too many children today is that, you know, dad was too busy with work or hobbies or friends to spend any time with me. Several years ago, I was telling first servers that there was a survey taken among 300, three, not four or five, 300 seventh and eighth graders. This was the assignment. They were to keep track of how many, uh, how much time they saw their, excuse me, <laughs> how much time they saw their father every day, and they were going to record that for two weeks, okay? Most reported that they only saw their fathers at the dinner table. Many said they didn't see their fathers for days at a time. Maybe they were traveling on business, or when they got home, the children were already in bed sleeping. At the end of this time, they took these 300 kids, the, the surveys of these 300 kids, put them together, and they discovered that as they averaged it out, um, each child, well, the children were spending... Uh, their fathers were spending roughly seven and a half minutes with them a day. 
Seven and a half minutes with a minute. I was telling first service that because of the COVID lockdowns, that has changed. What the devil intended for evil, God has used for good. COVID is terrible, but God has used it uh, to bring unite families. Because um, fathers and moms have to work from home. The kids get to see them more. And that's good because the kids are not meeting in for in-person learning classes. So the loneliness, within, it's taken its toll on a lot of kids. But if the parents are there, or at least one of them, it helps those kids cope. But we all hope and pray that this eventually comes to an end. And when it does, I guarantee you that dads are going to go back to working, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours a day to build their business, to climb the corporate ladder, and sometimes moms too now. But statistics like this have given birth to a song like, you know, you've heard it, Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. As I was studying um, for, for this message years ago, and I've used most of it, but I came across uh, one author, and uh, he's a well-known author, and he said this, and I'm quoting him. He said, many of you recall the popular song Cats in the Cradle, sung by Harry Chapin. The words always bring a tear to my eye because I'm a, I'm a father, and over the years I have had to travel so much. The song unfolds as follows. Let me, let me read it to you. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the chorus, the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, Dad, I don't know when. But we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. He, it said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know I'm going to be like him. And then the chorus. My son came from college just the other day. So much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head and said with a smile, what I really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle, of course. The song goes on. I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And the chorus changes. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you come in home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. We're going to have a good time then. The author goes on. He said, the melodrama of this song was played out in Chapin's own life, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I had been told that his wife, who actually wrote the words to the song, asked him one day when he was going to slow down the torrid pace of his life and spend some time with the children. He, his answer was, at the end of this busy summer, I'll take some time to be with them. And that summer, ironically and tragically, Harry Chapin was killed in a car accident. It is not possible to read that postscript of Chapin's death and miss the larger point, that something was known, believed, and even preached, yeah, through that song, but never lived. When we chase man-made crowns and sacrifice the treasured relationships for which God has made us, and folks, he has made us for relationship. God is a relational being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He hasn't made us for things. He's made us for each other. When we chase man-made crowns and sacrifice the treasured relationships for which God has made us, life loses its meaning, end quote. When children are neglected by their earthly fathers, they grow up to feel that their heavenly father doesn't have any time for them either. That he's too busy to be bothered with their problems. Yet just the opposite is true. You don't have to turn there. But Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. God 
your thoughts toward me are more than all the grains of the sand and all the beaches in the bottom of every ocean on the planet. And even that's not enough to describe God's thoughts towards us. He is with us when we lay down and go to sleep. He watches over us all night. And when we awake, he's there. Jesus even said that the Father cares about us so much that he even keeps track of the number of hairs on our head. Some of you make it easy on him. Why would Jesus say that? Why is it important to God to, to number every hair on our head? And every time we brush our hair, the number changes, right? So he's always adjusting things. Why is this so important to God? It's not important to God, the number of hairs in your head. Jesus said that because he wanted to communicate. If God is, is uh, concerned enough to count the hair, about you to count the hairs on your head, don't you think the bigger issues of life are more important to him? That you can't bring anything to God and hear him say, oh, are you kidding me? Don't bother me with that ridiculous nonsense. No, everything that touches our lives is important to God because we're important to God. He's always with us. He is constantly thinking about us and is concerned with the smallest details of our lives. Our lives are of the utmost importance to our Heavenly Father, and He always has time for us. Peter put it well when he said, Let Him have all your worries and cares, for He is always thinking about you and watching everything that concerns you. All right, we're done, but let me just... Our main point, number one, the failings of our earthly fathers. Quickly, briefly, the forgiving of our earthly fathers. Guys, if you can see that your relationship with your Heavenly Father has been damaged due to the mistakes and failings of your earthly father, listen, you've got to bring that to God. You have got to bring that to God. You must find forgiveness in your heart for anyone who has hurt you. If you don't, your bitterness will destroy your walk with God and rob you of the peace of God. There are people that have been victimized by fathers when they were little girls. And the father has long since died. And she's still victimized because she can't let go of the pain. I am not minimizing that in the least. But are you going to let your father continue to victimize you throughout your adult life now? Well, how do I get free of it? You have to let go. You have to ask God to give you the grace to forgive. You're forgiving your father, yes, but you're releasing yourself from all the heartache and abuse that continues. Realize, too, that you're not alone. You're not alone. There's no such thing as the perfect parent. Every parent makes mistakes. Yours did, you will, I have. Everyone has suffered some kind of hurt in their life at the hands of their parents. The secret to healing is found in forgiveness, even as God through Christ has forgiven us. Forgiveness is not an option. Oh, but they don't deserve forgiveness. Forgiveness is not earned. Listen to me, it's bestowed. We didn't earn forgiveness when God forgave us. He bestowed forgiveness on us because of what Jesus did in the cross, and we received that forgiveness. This idea that people have to earn my forgiveness. When Jesus hung on the cross and forgave those that put him there, did those soldiers and all, did they earn his forgiveness? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You have to let go. You have to, by God's grace, Extend forgiveness. Bestow it. That's the only way you're going to be free. Again, we're done. But don't resent the failings of your parents. Listen to me. They're just kids that grew up and had kids. Your real father is in heaven. And guess what? He is a perfect parent. He always disciplines in love. He doesn't punish. He lovingly corrects. He is faithful, generous, and kind. He loves you for who you are and longs to spend time with you because you are important to him. You are special to him. You know what? I'm convinced that in the eyes of God, every one of us are only children, only child. He acts that way. He treats every one of us as if we're the only child he's got. We don't realize that. That's how he treats us. That's how special we are to him. So let's stop looking at our earthly fathers as an example of what our Heavenly Father is like. 
because earthly fathers are human, fallible, and prone to mistakes. Let's love them, forgive them, respect them, honor them, pray for them, and encourage them. There's nothing more powerful when a child who is an adult now comes to their father, their less than perfect father, and don't think we don't know it, and says, Dad, you know, you weren't perfect, but you were a good father in many ways. And I want to just tell you that. Wow. And I'm talking to you children. Our fathers have not been perfect. Mine's gone now, but I do thank God. He wasn't perfect. I'm not going to get into his faults. But he worked three jobs to provide for his wife and five kids. Am I going to hold that? Am I going to focus on what he was not perfect about, about him? Am I going to focus on how he lived his life for his family? So let's, not, let's stop looking at our earthly fathers as an example of what our heavenly father is like. If you want to know what your, heaven, your father in heaven is truly like, look at Jesus, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Amen? Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that, Lord Jesus, you came down here, yes, to die for us, but also to teach us what God is really like. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that through your example, we now understand the, the invisible God stamped on human flesh is his image. And Lord, you are the perfect manifestation of the Father in human form, the perfect representative. And Lord, give us grace to focus on you and how you treated sinners and how you treated people and how you were forgiving and loving and kind and patient. Because the next time the devil tries to condemn us when we fail, give us the grace to look to you, Lord, as an example of what our Father in heaven is like. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.